The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We are continuing our study this morning on 1 John. Now, I've been saying since we started our study of 1 John that this epistle is written to those who have trusted Christ. It's written to believers. John's purpose in this epistle is to instruct his readers on how to have fellowship with Yeshua and the Father. That's the issue here is fellowship. He says in 1 John 1.3, That which we have seen and heard and proclaimed also to you, that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Yeshua the Christ. So this verse introduces the purpose of the epistle. It's so that you may have fellowship with us. This is what's called a hina purpose clause in the Greek with the present active subjunctive. And the main theme of the epistle is fellowship. That's important. Hopefully you got that by now in this study. But... If you're reading commentaries, you're going to quickly see that most see this epistle not about fellowship. They see it as a test to show who's saved and who's not. For example, John MacArthur writes, This is a book that is intended to distinguish true Christians from false Christians. We'll talk more about MacArthur and his little test view a little later on here. But I think this test view is dangerous. Because it can easily cause believers to begin to judge one another and become very pharisaical. You know, we got this test, alright, so we're past... You know, we usually don't apply the test to ourselves, we want to apply it to everybody else and start judging, oh, they can't be a Christian because they did this, or they can't be a Christian because they did that. And we just become Pharisees. The epistle is not a test to see who's saved and who's not saved. John gives us ways in which we may test our own relationship to Yahweh in the sense of fellowship. Are we in fellowship or are we not? That's what this is about. Not about testing ourselves or other believers. In 1 John 1, 6, he says, If we say we have fellowship with Him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. So it's about fellowship and he says you can't have fellowship if you're walking in darkness. And in 2, 6, he says this, Whosoever says he abides in him. Now, having fellowship, abiding are synonyms. They're the same thing. Alright? So whoever says he is fellowshipping with him, he says, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's simple, right? If you want to be in fellowship, just walk like Christ. Be like Christ. Alright? And if you're not living like Christ, John is saying you're not in fellowship. Now, the verb abides here is the Greek mano. This is a major theological term for John. It's used 24 times in this letter, 40 times in the Gospel. And the phrase, abide in Him, means exactly the same thing as knowing Him that John uses in verse 4. Both expressions convey the same thing as saying, have fellowship with Him in 1.6. They're all one and the same experience. Having fellowship with Him, John's use of knowing Him, abiding in Him, they all indicate the same thing. They're all synonyms for having a close, intimate relationship with Yahweh. 
You become a Christian by trusting Christ. You walk in fellowship with the Lord by spending time with Him, by walking in holiness, by walking in the light, communicating with Him. Now, we begin a new section in the letter this morning. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13-21 through 21 constitutes the conclusion of the epistle. And with verse 12, John ended the formal argument of the book. Verse 12 summed it up like this, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Alright, that's it. You got the Son, you got life. If you don't have Him, you don't have life. And the way you have the Son is through faith. Now, Colin G. Krauss, in the Pillar New Testament Commentary, gives us an overview of this final section that I thought was pretty good. He writes this. With this section, 5.13-21, the author begins his letter, the author brings his letter to a conclusion. In doing so, he picks up several of the themes already developed in the letter. This concluding section comprises four subsections. A, verse 13 through 15, the author indicates that his purpose in writing was to reassure his readers concerning their possession of eternal life and explains what that means as far as prayer in general is concerned. And then B, in 5:16 through 17, he amplifies the theme of prayer urging his readers to pray for those overtaken by sins that do not lead to death, while indicating that he is not asking them to pray for those whose sins do lead to death. And then see verse 18 through 20, the author further reassures his readers by reminding them that they are no longer under the power of the evil one, being kept safe by Jesus Christ himself, and that they have been given knowledge of the truth and eternal life in Jesus Christ, And then D, 521, the concluding exhortation, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols with which the letter ends. So I think that's a good overview of these final verses that Krauss gives us here. This morning we're going to focus just on verse 13. This is a verse you may have memorized. This is a verse a lot of Christians are familiar with because it, it talks about assurance. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now let's look at this in Young's first for a second. If you notice, Young says, These things I did write to you who are believing in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that life, the life ye have age during, and that you may believe in the name of the Son of God. Now that last clause there in yellow is found in the Texas Receptus, which is the basis of the King James Version and Young's. The problem here, again, we're into textual criticism here. We've talked about this a couple weeks ago. This is not found in the later manuscripts, and it's most likely was not genuine. It was added sometime later. So most translations, if you get a newer translation, it doesn't have this. It's not there. You're not missing anything, all right? They think it just was not originally part of the text. Now, verse 13 is very similar theologically to the closing of the Gospel of John. He's closing his letter here. This is a, as he, his 13 starts through the end. This is the final section. If we go back to the Gospel, it's been a while, so let me try to jog your thinking here. In John 20, 30, and 31, he says this, Now Yeshua did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Through this book, John gives us seven signs, miracles that the Lord was performing to show that He was not a man, He was the God-man. These signs, he says, which are not written in the book. In other words, he did a lot more than that. But these are written so that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ. 
Alright, I told you about these signs, and we've written these things so you'll believe that He's the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you will have life in His name. The Gospel of John is the only book in the New Testament that says it's specifically written to bring people to faith in Christ. And that's why, you know, you you got someone who's a new Christian or someone who just is interested in things of God. Read the Gospel of John. That's the stated purpose of that book. To bring people to faith in Christ. It's an evangelistic work. But we see from chapter 5 and verse 13 of the first epistle that John writes to people who already believe. He's not writing to tell them how to get saved. He's writing to those who already believed. The Gospel says these are written so you may believe. The Epistle says I write these things to you who believe. So the Gospel of John has a message of salvation. The Epistle of John is a message of assurance and fellowship. He's writing to them that they may have fellowship with the Father, that they may have assurance in that. That the letter and the Gospel both end on the same note, I think kind of helps us understand that they're written by the same person. John is the author of the Gospel and the epistles, and the revelation. Now he says, I write these things to you. What are the these things? What's he talking about? Many see the these things as a reference to the entire letter. I'm writing this letter to you, but as I said earlier, John's purpose in the epistle is to instruct his readers on how to have fellowship. Where he says, I'm writing these things so you'll have assurance. So I don't think that these things covers the whole book. I think it's better to see the phrase these things as referring to what John has just written about God's witness in verse 6 through 12, rather than see it as the whole epistle. Now, the these things we see in 1 4 refers to what was previously written in 1 1, 1 through 3. And the these things we see again in 2 1 refers to what immediately precedes that in 1, 5 through 10. And the these things in 2.26 refers to what immediately precedes in 2.18 through 25. So John is, when he says these things, it's most likely referring just upwards, you know, to what he said in verse 6 through 12. And he's talking about assurance here. His stated purpose of the epistle, again, we said was this is his purpose. In 1, 3 through 4, he says, that which we have seen and heard, In other words, he says, listen, we were there. We were with Christ. We saw Him. We heard Him teach. We touched Him. We handled Him. We were there. We proclaim to you. Why? So that you can have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Yeshua the Christ. We are writing these things. Why? So that your joy may be complete. So is he writing so they'll have fellowship or they'll have joy? Yeah. Because when you have fellowship, guess what? You have joy. And people, I, I just wish there was some way I could communicate that. When you are walking in fellowship with God, you will know joy like you will never know under any other circumstance, under any other condition, because walking with the Creator of the universe brings great joy, no matter what our circumstances are. Joy. I write so you can have fellowship, and you're going to have joy. Your joy will be complete. So I think it's wrong to take these things, verse 13, as a statement of purpose about the entire epistle. Because the whole epistle is not just about how we'll have assurance. The focus is fellowship. We've seen that as we've gone through. He says, I'm writing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, 
Let me first say that these words do not mean to those of you who believe. The Greek here means to you believers. Nowhere in this epistle does John even hint that he thinks some of his readers might not be Christians. He's writing to believers. So he's not saying, I'm writing to those of you who believe, you others can listen in. No, I'm writing to believers. He's convinced. He knows his audience. He knows they're Christian. Now he says, you, those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So let me ask you, what is the name of the Son of God? What's he talking about? Is it Jesus? Is it Yeshua? What's he mean by the name? Believe in the name. Oh, I believe in Jesus. I believe in what? What's he saying? We've come on. We've talked about this a lot of times, people. Thank you. In Hebrew thought, name means character. All that person is. To us, name is just, you know, we identify one person from the other. But to, in the Hebrew thought, it told us something about the person. In Exodus 20, verse 7, it says, You shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. For Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This could be translated, you shall not take the character of Yahweh in vain. And so we could say, we could translate it this way, you shall not falsely represent the character of Yahweh. See, this, this verse is not about saying, oh God, oh you took his name in vain. First of all, God is not his name. Okay, and that's not what it's talking about. All right, it's talking about you misrepresenting the character of God. When followers of Christ live in an, an act in an ungodly manner, they take the name of God in vain. Now, who is it that John says has the right to become the children of God here? He says it's those who believe in the name. And then in one twelve, he says, "But to all who did receive him." Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. The word received here is an aorist active indicative of lambano. The aorist tense indicates that at some point in the past they had received him, and it is a verb that is put in the active voice stressing the activity of God. They received him because God moved in their lives. Now, who received him? It was those and only those who believed in his name. Now, to the ancients, one name, one's name expressed the sum of the qualities that marked the nature or character of that person. To believe in His name means to accept the revelation of who Yeshua is that God has given. It involves believing that Yeshua is fully man and fully God, come to redeem the world. You cannot deny the deity of Yeshua and believe in His name. That's part of His name. That's His character. You can't say He is only a man and be believing in His name. He's not just a man. He's the God-man. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word has been in existence since the very beginning, since eternity past. The Word was God, He says. Now, that he, the fact that the Word was God prohibits us from seeing no distinction between the Father and the Word. There's a distinction. The Son is the Word. He's distinct from the Father. This is Trinitarian. And he says, and the Word was God. In verse 3, we see that the Word is the Creator of all things. And then in verse 14, Lazarus says this, and the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I like the way the complete Jewish Bible translates this. I think it gives us a good sense. He says this, the Word became a human being. And He lived with us. And we saw His Shekinah, the Shekinah of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. The Word became a human being. The eternal Word who created everything, who was God, was with God and was God, became a human being. This verse teaches the staggering truth that Yeshua of Nazareth was Yahweh become man. Now to understand the importance of believing in His name, look what Yeshua says in John 8.24, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. What Yeshua is saying is that people must believe, they must believe so that they don't die in their sins, is that He is God. The conditional clause provides the proper object of faith. He says, if you do not believe that ego eimi, and that translate, the translators add he here, he is not in the text, it's not in the Greek, So what Yeshua is claiming here, He is claiming to be the I Am. Unless you believe that I Am. And any Jew would know, what does that take you? That takes you back to Exodus 3, when Yahweh said, I Am that I Am. The self-existent, eternal God. That's who Christ is claiming to be. He says, unless you believe in the name of the Son of God. This is a title that unambiguously claims deity. He's the Son of God. It means He is God. In John 5.18, He says this, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Because He not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. Yeshua is equal with God. That's why he was doing that. He is God. Now, John the baptizer identifies himself as the voice. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. That's the voice that Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 40. They went to John and they said, who are you? And he said, I'm the voice. A voice preparing the way for who? Who was he preparing the way for? Yeshua, right? He's there, he baptizes you, preparing the way. Well, look what Isaiah says about it. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So here the voice is clearing the way for Yahweh, yet John says he's preparing the way for Yeshua. This is because Yeshua is Yahweh. You got that? All right. John the baptizer testified that Yeshua was Yahweh. And that's why the Jew says he's calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. He was. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 6, 5. And I said, woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King Yahweh of hosts. John here, or I mean Isaiah here, is in the throne room of God. He has a throne room vision. And he sees Yahweh. Then in John 12, we are told that the person Isaiah saw was Christ. John 12, 41, he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, referring to Christ. 
and spoke of Him. As you look back in the context of this chapter, you see that Isaiah saw Yeshua, who he called Yahweh. Yeshua is Yahweh the Son, the second person of the Trinity. To believe in His name is to believe the testimony of what the Scripture says about Him. It's not to believe what you think about Him, what you hope about Him, what you wish about Him. It's to believe what the Bible says about Him. And when you do believe that, he says, that you may know that you have eternal life. What could be more important than knowing that you have eternal life? Not hoping, not wishing, not thinking. You know, in the culture, the cultural environment we live in today, if you say anything too strongly, like, you know, you have some strong belief, you know, like you say, I know something. Okay, I know I'm going to heaven. Now, people are like, that's arrogant. You're proud. That's presumption. No, it's just the truth. Okay, but people can't handle the truth today. You know, you got to be wishy-washy. But for a believer not to know that he has eternal life, that's a really sad thing. We don't hope for eternal life like the transition saints did. We know we have it. And if you don't know you have it, something is wrong. Okay. Because assurance is very much a part of the Christian life. These Christians whom John had written, they were dealing with false teachers. And they had been shaken by these false teachers. These antichrists. They denied very important elements of the message. They denied the deity of Christ. The reader, and the readers were being shaken. Their assurance had been shaken by the denials and the claims. And so John is writing here to bolster their assurance by counteracting these false teachers these secessionists that were teaching these various doctrines. D.L. Moody once said this, I have never known a Christian who was any good in the work of Christ who did not have the assurance of salvation. You understand what he's saying there? You get that? What he's saying is assurance is vitally important for Christian service, for Christian living. If you don't even know for sure you're a Christian, what's your motivation to live in holiness and live righteously? You're not really sure. I don't, I'm not really sure where I'm at. Can you imagine the emotional state of a child who doesn't know day to day whether he's a member of the family or not? You know, today you're a good boy, so we'll consider you a member of our family. Tomorrow he misbehaves. He might not be a member of the family any longer. Might have to put him out. Today he's loved by his father, tomorrow maybe not. This child would be a neurotic mess, okay? You're a part of a family regardless of your behavior, okay? Now, today things are really messed up, but let me just say, any good family, you're part of that family, nothing changes that, okay? Nothing. Not your behavior, you might be out of fellowship with the family, but you're still part of that family. And that's how it is with the family of God. If you belong to Christ, you are part of God's family, you will always and ever be a part of God's family. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. And you can enjoy an emotional security with your Heavenly Father and not have these worries about, oh, did I lose my salvation? Did I mess up? Did I do something wrong? You know, people talk about, you've heard the thing, once saved, always saved. And, oh, that's terrible. It's just it, people. That's how it is. If you were saved, you're always going to be saved. Because God saved you, and He's not going to change His mind. 
because he made up his mind from eternity past, and he's going to keep you no matter how messed up, how screwed up you get. And sometimes we get really messed up. And listen, listen to me, people. It's so comforting, even when you know you messed up, you go to bed that night, you're like, man, I sure did not live for the Lord this day, but you know what? He still loves me. I got confidence I'm going to get up in the morning and do a little bit better tomorrow because I don't want to disappoint my father. But if you feel like, okay, God kicked me out, where, where do you go from there then? You know, when they built the first section of the Golden Gate Bridge, there's no safety net to protect the workers. And 23 workers fell to their deaths in the water below. That was a long fall, okay? However, during the construction of the last part of the bridge, uh, some city officials got together and they started thinking about this. Maybe we should do something, all right? They decided to install a safety net. It cost them $100,000. Now, back then, that was a lot of money, okay? <laughs> a lot of money. But it was worth it because they saved the lives of 10 men. After they put that net up, 10 of the workers did fall and they got caught in the net and they were fine. The interesting thing about the story is when they completed the bridge, they discovered through a very exhaustive study that 25% more work was accomplished in the same period of time when the men were completely sure of their personal safety. See, they're not worried anymore about, oh, if I fall, I'm dead. If I fall, it's okay. The net will catch me and we'll be all right. All right? They could get on with their work. They had security that they longed for, so they just got their work done and they did much better at it. I think it's the same in the Christian life. When you have assurance, you know God loves you. You know you're part of the family. You're not going to mess up and lose that. To be a productive Christian, you need to know your future is secure. That's why understanding our eternal security is so important. Because it allows our fears to be dealt with. It gives us confidence for the task at hand. It offers the emotional stability that we need. If you understand what the Bible has to say about God's security, you will see that God who saved you keeps you forever. You know, the church today is so focused on personal performance that it's all about you. And that's why people are so messed up in the church because it's, oh, I didn't do so good today, I'm out. I got to get back in. What do you got to do? I got to believe again? Well, I already did that once. You know, how frustrating can that be? When I was pastor at Atlantic Shores Baptist Church, we had an altar call every week. Same people came to that altar every week. Every week. You know, because they just couldn't get a hand. You know, they, they wanted to get saved again because I just, I messed up this week. And you'd have to try to straighten out people's theology because, you know, that's, no, that's not right. Not right at all. Now, throughout the years, this subject of eternal security has been hotly debated in theology. Okay? There's always been those who have affirmed you can lose your salvation. Uh, there's so many people, they hang on to that. That's important to them. I don't really understand why. I guess because they think their performance is superior, so they, you know, anybody else is messed up. The five points of Calvinism are simply the Calvinistic answer to the five-point manifesto uh, put out by certain Belgic semi-Pelagians in the early 17th century. We know this semi-Pelagian manifest as Arminianism. And its fifth point of Arminianism states this. It rests with believers to keep themselves in a state of grace by keeping up their faith. Those who fail here fall away and are lost. Now, the problem I have here is we got believers being lost. That doesn't happen. That can't happen. 
But that's what Arminianism teaches, all right? As Christians, do we all live on the brink of damnation? You know, like, oh boy, I mess up. I'm, I'm out. If our salvation is conditional on our ability to maintain it, you want to talk about depression? You want to talk about discouragement? I mean, people get depressed about a lot of things far less significant than this. But I can understand depression. I can understand taking massive amounts of Prozac and Abilify if you believe you can lose your salvation because that would cause depression, all right? You would live constantly in mortal fear. What does it take to lose it? Now, that believers differ on that. You know, some you have to give it away, some you can send it away, whatever, all right? Roman Catholicism, after the Protestant Reformation, at the Council of Trent, they met in three sessions from 1545 to 1564. And in 1547, they declared in its decrees concerning justification, they decreed this, except by special revelation. In other words, they meant by, unless you got some dream from God, some vision, God showed up and told you differently. Unless you had a special revelation, it cannot be known whom God has chosen to Himself. You can't know if you're a Christian or not. Okay? If anyone says that he will be certain with an absolute infallible certainty to have that great gift of perseverance even to the end, unless he shall have learned it by special revelation, again, some vision or something, let him be anathema. The Catholic Church is saying, if you think you have assurance of salvation, let you be damned. They're praying some imprecatory prayers here, people. You be damned if you think you have assurance. Wow, isn't that crazy? One of the cardinals, Cardinal Bellarmine, denounced the Reformation doctrine of assurance as, I quote, a prime error of heretics. You just can't know, I guess. Well, if that's true, they must mean that John was a heretic, for he says that we can know we have eternal life. They must mean Paul was a heretic, because Paul talked in Romans 8 about nothing being able to separate us from the love of God. If we're heretics, we're in good company. The Synod of Dort was convened in 1618 to pronounce on this theology, and the five points of Calvinism represented the counter-affirmations. The Calvinistic fifth point states this. See if you like this better than the Arminian one. Believers are kept in faith and grace by the unconquerable power of God till they come to glory. I like that one better than the Arminian one. Okay? There's nothing about me there. Okay? I'm kept by what? The unconquerable power of God. People, the doctrine that says you can lose your salvation puts conditions on, of maintenance on salvation. In other words, God has saved us but we must continue to match up with the standard in order to hold on to that salvation. We've got to do certain things. If we fail, we lose it. Now, the majority of churchgoers, and I don't think that's an exaggeration to say the majority, do not understand that our salvation is not based on what we do, but is based upon what Christ did. That's why there's so much legalism in the church. Because it's about you. You performing. You doing the work. They think their relationship with God is based on their performance. And if you think that, you have to have a high view of yourself because you think you're always adding up, I guess. 
Or if you have a low view, you're going to think you're damned and then you really feel bad. But I think most Christians think that as long as they live right, that God won't condemn them. It's a work system. To attempt to live the Christian life by works is to live under constant guilt and condemnation. But to understand that salvation is by grace through faith, and that we are absolutely secure because of Christ's work will bring great peace to your soul. Security is vital to peace. You understand that? If you're insecure, you're, you're not going to have peace. If you're living in a neighborhood and you know houses are being broken into and people are being killed or whatever, you're not going to have a lot of peace there. Security is vital to peace. And nothing's greater than understanding the security of your salvation. We need to understand that our salvation is based upon the act of one person. Yeshua the Christ. We have to get that. This is fundamental. This is Theology 101. Our salvation is about what Christ did. It's not based on our acts. Just as we were all condemned by Adam, so we're all made righteous by Christ. Here's a verse you've got to learn, you've got to understand. In chapter 5, we don't have time to go into all the details of this, but this is just an awesome chapter that compares Adam and Christ. Adam, the first Adam, and then Christ, the last Adam, who came and fulfilled and completed what Adam messed up on. But it says, For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. People are sinners because of Adam. So by the one man's obedience, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. Now, the Greek word for made here, kathistemi, it means to set down in the rank of, to place in the category of, to appoint to a particular class. The word made is not causative, it's declarative. Very important that we understand that. Those in Adam were declared sinners. It's imperative that we get this. You were declared a sinner. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. It doesn't say you were made sinful, but made sinners. The whole human race has been constituted legally as sinners. That's our judicial standing before God, and it's based entirely and solely on Adam's act of disobedience. Because of Adam's one sin, we are all made sinners this is a judicial act of God. He decreed that the whole humanity should be represented by the first man. Adam represented humanity. He was put in the garden as a man to represent us. He sinned. He blew it. And we all suffer the consequences of that. We are constituted as sinners because of that. We all sinned, listen, in Adam and with Adam because he was our federal head. He was our representative. And therefore God pronounced us all to be sinners. That's only one side though, thank God. Alright? There's another side. And he says, so by the righteous act of one man came justification that leads to life. This is the great truth that we see here. That we are all, we all have come to the fact if we're in Christ By one man's obedience, it was by the obedience of Christ, the last Adam, that our salvation is based entirely on Him, from Him, in Him. As my being a sinner came from my relationship with Adam, my righteousness comes from my relationship with Yeshua the Christ. Your assurance of salvation comes 
not from your feelings, not from your understanding. It comes from your connection with Christ. Look at yourself in Adam. You didn't do anything. You were declared a sinner. And you're like, I don't like that. Why did he mess up? That's not fair, right? Well, God did it, and He created you so He can do whatever He wants. But Adam was your representative. Adam blew it. You blew it with him. Well, God provided another representative. Now look at yourself in Christ. Now this side you like. Yeah, I think I'll take that side. That's good. Christ, I want Christ to represent me. You see that you have done nothing to deserve it. You are declared righteous. That's the parallel. We need to get rid of all thoughts of our actions as far as gaining or keeping salvation. We are justified, we are declared righteous because of, our, because of the obedience of Yeshua and Yeshua alone. By the one man's obedience. With a little help from you. No, it doesn't say that. Okay, One man's obedience, Christ. The many will be made righteous. He died a substitutionary death on our behalf. 1 Peter 2.24 says He Himself, nobody else helped, you don't help, you don't add to it. And that's the Catholic Church, you know. Christ died for you, He died for your sin debt, but He didn't complete it all, you got to help out. It was insufficient. People, if anything of this is left up to me, I'm in trouble. Okay? He Himself bore our sins in His body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. We're healed because of what He did. At the end of Romans 5.19, He says this, So, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The people who belong to Christ are made righteous. Again, the word made, kathistomy, it means to set down in the rank of. To place in the category of. To appoint to a particular class. The word has the same meaning on both sides of the equation. So we are declared righteous on the grounds of Christ's obedience alone. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, He made Him, that's Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin. He took our sin. Why? So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. He took our sin gave us His righteousness. Yeshua was regarded and treated as a sinner so that we could be regarded and treated as righteous in the sight of God. As a believer, I'm righteous. I will always be righteous because I'm in Christ. It's not my righteousness that gets me there. It's His. And I'm as righteous as Christ. That bothers people to say that. It's almost like, how can you say that? If you can't say that, you're in trouble. Because that's the only righteousness that will ever get you in any relationship with God, is Christ. So I'm as righteous as Christ. I'm not talking about my practice. You understand that. Don't say amen back there, Tim. <laughs> I'm not talking about my practice. I'm talking about my position, which is very important. My position before God is I'm as righteous as Jesus Christ. Now, in case Romans 5.19 is not enough, and it should be. I mean, it's, it's just... And if we just... Went through the whole thing, I mean, the whole chapter there. It would real, this chapter is about security, all right? But in case it wasn't enough, let me just give you a few more verses from some other places on security so you understand that we're talking about our security in Christ. It's very secure. John 6, which is an excellent chapter on security. Yeshua says, All that the Father gives me 
will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, most people miss this, but the Father gave people to Yeshua. See, here's what you got to understand. The church, the elect, is a love gift that the Father gave to the Son because of the Son's work on the cross. So we are a love gift. All that the Father gives me, that's the idea of calling and election. The ones given by Christ to the Father come to Christ. Now, two verses earlier, Yeshua connected coming to Him to believing in Him. So they're synonymous. So to come to Him is to believe in Him. So we could say, all that the Father gives me will believe in me. And whoever believes in me, I'll never cast out. I'll never cast out. You'll never be lost. Because you're part of my family now. Never will cast you out. Unless. No, there's no exception here. Alright. Unless you do this, or unless you don't behave. No, I will never cast you out. Whoever believes in me, I'll never cast out. 639. And this is the will of Him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. There's the given again. He, He gave these people. But raise it up on the last day. Okay, listen. The will of God. Do you think God gets what He wills? Okay. He does. So just trust me. All right. <laughs> this is the will of Him that sent me. That I should lose nothing of all He's given me. He gave it to me. I'm not going to lose it. I'm going to raise it up at the last day. Okay? The Father's will is that the ones He has given to Christ will stay with Christ. They will be resurrected. John 6.40 This is the will of my Father. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. I'll raise Him up at the last day. Again, everyone who looks on the Son, everyone who believes in Him has eternal life. They get resurrected. They would be resurrected on the last day, the end of the Old Covenant, at the return of Christ. We are raised up with Christ when we trust in Him. We're not waiting for anything, believers. We were resurrected when we came to faith in Him. God gave us new life. John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they will follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. They're never, Christ's sheep are not going to be lost. Who are his sheep? It is those who he calls. He gives those he calls eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now, he's talking about his Father, God. No one's going to snatch anything out of God's hand, okay? It's not going to happen. There's no close second. There's no rivals. So, let me ask you again now, just so we're clear on this, okay? This is important, so we want to be clear. So let me ask you, who can know that they have eternal life? Okay, good. It's right on the screen there, okay? Watch. Believe. If you believe, you can know. You who believe in the name of God, you can know for sure that you have eternal life. You don't have to hope. You don't have to wish. If you've trusted Christ, if you believed in the name. But let me tell you something, people. There's a lot of voices out there that are going to be telling you different than this. John MacArthur says this. And I don't always mean to be picking on John, but I respect him. I liked, I learned a lot from John. I appreciate he's finally taking a stand now and fighting. And by the way, Grace Community Church, the, the judge said they can stay open. They can even sing. Huh? Did you hear the latest? They had a 
evil judge, three-judge panel, and they said, nope. Oh, another judge overruled it? No, three-judge Three judge panel. Evil. Yeah, okay. All right, now he's not allowed to meet. That was quick. <laughs> he, he, he could have he met for a couple days, I guess. And the judge even was going to allow them to sing. You know, but MacArthur's like, I don't care what you say. We're meeting, we're singing, we're doing what we do. All right, this, these churches, people, getting distracted here, but these churches that are meeting and social distancing and wearing masks, get serious, would you? The church is a community. We're to come together as believers to hug and love and support one another. Stop buying into all this government nonsense and get back to the Scriptures and doing what God called us to do. All right. MacArthur says this. And talking, we're talking about this text here. He says, can you know? Of course, John says, that's why I wrote this epistle. So he thinks the purpose of the epistle is for that. I disagree with that. But he says, measure yourself against the tests. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Now, if he would stop there and the test was faith, I'd be like, okay, John, I'll go along with you on that. If you believe, you got it. But he goes on to say, do you understand your own sinful condition? Are you manifesting day in and day out the evidence? So there's evidence here. We've got to check out the evidence to see if you're a Christian or not. The evidence of a transformed life by virtue of your love for God. Here's how we're going to test if you really are a Christian. We're going to check your love for God. We're going to check your love for others. Right there, I would say most people are going to fail this test. Unless they're... What is it? A pony soldier, dog liars, or pony pony face dog soldier? I don't know what he said. <laughs> liars. Okay. Unless you're just a liar, you're not. You know your love for others. We fail there so much, people. All right. He goes on. Your hatred toward the world. That's another part of the test. You got to hate the world, and by manifesting your obedience. Hmm. How much obedience? Okay, by obedience, I guess he would mean that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And secondly, you love your neighbor as yourself. Now, anybody like that test so far? Now, he, look what he says. He said, if that's the case, if you do all that. Okay, let's back up here. Do all that. If you're manifesting day in and day out a transformed life by virtue of loving God, loving others, hatred for the world, manifesting obedience, if that's the case, if you pass the test, verse 13 says, you may know you have eternal life. Is that what verse 13 says? Where does it say that? John says you can know you have eternal life because you believe in the name of the Son of God. But John MacArthur says, no, you got to pass the test. You got to live obediently. You got to hate the world. You got to love God. You got to love your brother. You got to live an obedient life. He says, verse 13 says. Really? I don't see that in verse 13. And I'm looking at it. And the Greek doesn't even hint anything about tests or all these other conditions. He could have said that. But over and over through the Gospel, through the epistles, he makes it very clear, you are a believer if you trust Christ. MacArthur is a lordship teacher, so if you don't live up to all these things, you're not a Christian. He condemns so many people to be unsaved, he destroys Christian assurance 
Because if you've got to pass all these tests, your assurance is going to be pretty weak. Unless you're very self-deceived, okay? You're going to be pretty weak. And that's a sad thing, because he's not called to, to destroy Christians' assurance. He's called to build up the church, to build them up in the faith. It's not about what we do. All these stupid tests, and you've got to do this and do that and do this. Listen, people, nobody lives up to these standards. He talks about obedience. Whenever anybody talks about obedience being necessary for salvation, my first question is, how much? If obedience is necessary, I want to know how much. Why? I don't want to be an overachiever, right? I mean, I want to make sure I do enough to get in, but I don't want to not do enough. And nobody, nobody, and I've asked a lot of Lordship people this question. How much obedience? Do I have to, you know, let me show you some scriptures. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Okay? Esteem others better than yourself. So not to esteem others better than yourself would be sin. So do you esteem every other believer better than yourself? Watch people start backpedaling. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your... Do you love God with everything in you? It's all about God and nothing about you or anybody else other than other loving other believers? How much obedience? It can't be 100%, because nobody lives 100% obedient. So where do we put the line at? You know where the line comes? When you're a lordship, I know this, because I, I taught lordship for many, many years. I was lordship. You know where the line is? Right below you. That's where the line is. If I do it, I'm making it. Someone who's not, oh, you don't get in. You gotta have the, I mean, you gotta put a line somewhere and you gotta put it right below you so you can make it and other people can't. Listen, the doctrine MacArthur teaches turns you into a Pharisee. You're running around judging other believers instead of loving other believers and encouraging other believers, you're judging them. <gasps> you smoke cigarettes? Oh, you're not gonna get in. Yes, you will. You just smell like smoke. Okay? It's not about that. Ugh. Listen, John says, you who believe may know. No tests. Don't have to do any tests at all. You, if you believe, you know. All true assurance of salvation and eternal life has to rest, listen, on the testimony of God. People say, how do you know you're saved? Because God said, if I believe in the name of His Son, I'll have eternal life. That's how I know. I'm believing God. You think I can believe Him? You think He's trustworthy? Listen, people, to suggest that Christian experience, how you live, what you do, can stand on some relatively equal level with the testimony of God as ground for assurance is blasphemy. It's blasphemy. Because you're saying, well, I know I'm saved because I did this and did that and did that. You're trusting yourself. I'm going to trust God. He said, if I believe. How can you compare flawed human works with the testimony of God? And that's what salvation is about. It's about believing God. And when you believe Him, assurance is part of that package. Our assurance of salvation rests on the testimony of God, on His promise. Whoever has the Son has life. How do we have the Son? By believing. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so you will know. The irony is, 
that once Christian experience has made the grounds for assurance, as MacArthur tries to do, some hold 1 John's teaches that, this verse about knowing becomes a complete impossibility. How do you know? If you're basing it on your actions, what if tomorrow, what if your actions are not what they've been? What if something happened? Could you lose it then? You start not living right? You're going to lose it? Believers, you can have a lot of questions about life. A lot of questions about the world and how it works, the world in which we live in. There's one thing that you can know and you can know for sure, and that's that you have eternal life if you believed on the name of the Son. And the greatest question man will ever ask is about the assurance of his salvation. How do I know what happens in eternity? How do I know what happens after this life? You can know if you believe the Bible and you believe God. And believer, do you know today? Do you know this? If you don't know it, you need to get in the Scriptures and understand what God said and trust Him. But again, stuff like MacArthur teaches causes believers to doubt their salvation. A bad, bad place to be. Okay? Because nobody lives up to some of the stuff he teaches. Augustine, who many consider one of the greatest theologians of the church, says this, to be assured of our salvation is no arrogant stoutness. It is our faith. It's no pride. It's devotion. It's no presumption. It's God's promise. That's it. That's all it's about. It's about God. Anybody of you know who Sir James Young Simpson is? Anybody ever heard that name? He's the guy who discovered the anesthetic properties of chloroform. And he pioneered its application in surgery. He was on his deathbed, and a close friend asked him, Sir, what are your speculations? You're going to die? What do you think is going to happen? What are your speculations? And he says, the speculations? I have none, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. That's where you want to be, people. He's quoting here Paul from 2 Timothy 1.12, but he had assurance. He knew where he believed. He wasn't speculating about it because he had trusted God and he knew when death came, there's no question where I'm going. He was a believer. And I think if more Christians really had assurance, they'd be less fearful in this world. You know, I've seen so many Christians shaken by corona. You know, oh, what would it kills me? If you die, you die. Guess what? You go on to be with the Lord. The Lord's appointed a death day, a day to be born, and a day to die. And Corona's not going to short-circuit the plans of God. Like, God has to go to plan B now. Oh, Corona, I didn't, I didn't factor that in. Now i got to do something else. I heard a preacher say, oh, last week, he was talking about President Trump and how God uses Trump. And he said, um, the reason, you know, and some, I don't know, God had a game, came to him in a vision or something, but the reason God was using Trump is because the original guy that God wanted to use was aborted. That's what this preacher said. So I'm like, so God was like, I didn't see that coming. Well, let me figure out another plan. Oh, Trump, I'll take him. I mean, what kind of, what kind of nonsense, you know, what kind of lunacy is this? Oh, man, I guess he was trying to argue against abortion, which I don't think that's a very good way to do it, okay? <laughs> but he said, God had a plan, and the guy got aborted, so he had to go to Trump. Ah, people are so ignorant of the Bible. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, assurance is a precious, precious doctrine of the saints. I thank You so much for it, Lord. I don't have to doubt. I don't have to wish. I don't have to hope. I believe You. And part of salvation is the knowledge that I'm secure throughout eternity, Lord. Nothing can shake it. Nothing can take me from Your hands. Nothing can separate believers from the love of God in Christ. Father, we rejoice in that. Help us, Lord, to understand, to know Your Word, to understand that it is through the obedience of the One that the many are made righteous. We rest, Lord, in Your Word. We have confidence in it. And it gives us great boldness in our service because we know whom we have believed. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us. Amen. Okay. Anthony. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's coming to me more and more. I mean, each, each and every day, even when you read the Bible, it's like a living word, and you get more out of it, even if you read the same thing a week later. But uh, believing in Him, right? When we get it, it just shouldn't be a period after it. Just like the word stated upon the board here. And what follows that is in his name, right? Which is his character. So if we if we try to not stop there and continue on with his character, it would be better for us. Oh, okay. Listen, no no question. Absolutely. Here's here's right. here's one of the biggest arguments against what I believe. That people call it easy believism. In other words, you believe and you don't have to do anything. Listen, if you come to Christ by faith, you hear the gospel, you understand it, you believe it, and then you're like, you go out and live in sin, guess what? You're going to have one miserable life. We talked about this in the very beginning. Fellowship brings joy. God loves His children. He wants His children to commune with Him. All of them don't. When they don't, He spanks them. And God can spank mighty hard. He can see lives turned upside down. He can torment your mind so your thinking is not right. And you just, you know, the Bible talks in Matthew 18 about being turned over to the torturers. That's pretty vivid, people. God knows how to get people's attention. I've seen it over and over. Believers living in sin and God comes in and he just spanks them so hard, you know, wakes them up. So yes, I think you can believe and you can live in sin. You will be sorry for it, but, but that's not the way to live. You want to have joy, you follow Christ. You live for Christ, you live obediently. All Christians are called to live obediently. Some of them really don't. That was the, the second part of it. You okay. just answered because the second part I was going to ask you about. Uh, John 6, 37, other than the Father. And then in the second part of that, whoever comes to me, I would never cast him out. But at the same time, just like you said, you suffer the consequences of that. He'll discipline. He's not going to cast us out. Listen, if you believe in Christ, you're going to heaven. You might get really severely disciplined here on earth. You have to make a distinction, Christian, between your practice and your position. Your position is unchangeable. It's set in concrete. It'll never be moved. Your practice depends upon how you go through this life, okay? And I'll tell you what. When a Christian is walking in communion with fellowship with God... Life is just good. Life is just good. I mean, I tell you people, the majority of my prayer life is just being thankful for all I have. I'm like, I just, you know, hard to believe that God has blessed me so, okay? And I'll tell you, this study of 1 John has really helped me. 
in some areas, you know, it's like I don't shouldn't go in that area. Now I'm like, that could hurt my fellowship. I do not want to hurt that fellowship. I'm not going there, okay? I'm not going there. Why? Because I want to live in communion. It's it's a great spot to be in close, intimate communion with your father, walking with him, no matter what life brings. Dora? I was going to say, even though it's bad, David, if you're abiding, you have this supernatural joy in Exactly. That's the thing. When you're abiding in Christ, when you're walking in fellowship, there's joy. It's not saying your circumstances, oh, if, if you abide with Christ, your circumstances will be perfect. No, they won't. But guess what? You, you'll be fine in it. Okay? You'll be fine in it. All right? No matter how bad it does get. Gary? So, this has been MacArthur's position forever. How does he have such a large congregation? Why do they say it? Um, John has a lot of good points. All right, one of the points, and, and I think I got my preaching style from John. John teaches verse by verse. Okay, when I was a young Christian, I got a hold of every tape he ever did, and I listened to him at work all day because I had a job that I could do that, and I had a cassette player, <laughs> cassettes, and a headphone, and I would listen to him all. That was my education. Okay. And I learned verse by verse. And I admire him for that. I mean, so few people do that today. You know, it's three points in a poem. Most places you go, he teaches. And so that's good. Uh, the Lordship thing is many people are there. All right. And especially if you're Calvinistic. It seems to go with Calvinism, which to me doesn't fit very good at all. Okay. You know, but I don't know. It's just that's where he's at. And he's preached that strong for a long time. And I was with him for a long time. And then I had a V8, and I was like, whoa, this doesn't, you know, I realized, I realized I was a Pharisee, and I was judging everybody else. If I heard somebody cuss, they're not a Christian. I'm serious. I'd write them off, because, hey, that, the Christians don't do, I didn't do it, so that's what a Christian is. I'm the standard. <laughs> that's right. That, that line's right under me. <laughs> Gary? Part of Pharisees that's good that's good we are definitely I mean it's just again it turns it turns us into fruit inspectors it turns us into Pharisees and we're all running around judging everybody else worry about yourself okay you know when you read the Bible don't think of oh, I wish they'd see this be glad you saw it and apply it to your own life okay Stan uh, to answer Gary's point, my friend went to uh, Grace Seminary or whatever it's called. The Master's College. Yeah, Master's College. And he said that um, they have a lot of mega churches in California, so it's not just John. Yeah. All right. There is a lot of mega churches out there. And they're seemingly no influence on the culture. Yeah, it's sad. Okay, I got a question. The question is this, what about sin unto death? We didn't get there yet. That's next week. That's next week. What, do you want me to preach another message right now? We did verse 13 today. We're going into there, and I will talk about the sin unto death. I mean, and I assume from the question that you're asking, does that mean a Christian can lose their salvation, the sin unto death? No, you can't lose your salvation, but we'll talk about the sin unto death in the coming weeks and months. <laughs> Anybody else? We done? 
Dan? One more point. I think the verse that really cemented this for me, and I heard it when I was a young believer, but still, and then I got involved with John, and that really messed me up. Uh, but it was the just shall live by faith. Well, that's for sure. I mean, there's so much of Scripture, you know. And I guess the problem with MacArthur is he sees so many verses calling for obedience, calling for holiness, and he just wants to make that a standard of salvation when it's just not. Okay? <laughs>